Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and this is a special three-episode podcast about witches and witch hunting in colonial Connecticut. Why was early Connecticut New England's fiercest prosecutor of witches? Why were most witches women? What terrible things happened during the 1660s Hartford witch hunt? And why do so few people know about them? We'll answer these questions and more in this special edition of Grading the Nutmeg. Parts one and two are from a talk I gave in mid-October at Willimantic's Mill Museum. Part three is an extended interview Brenda Miller of Hartford Public Library and I conducted with historian Richard Ross on his exciting new book, Before Salem, Witch Hunting in the Connecticut River Valley. So brew up a pot of tea, settle in your favorite chair, and give a listen as we share the once hidden tale of witchcraft in Connecticut, another of the stories we live by on Grading the Nutmeg. Please join me in welcoming our state historian, Dr. Walt Woodward, to speak on New England's other witch trials. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for taking um, taking a, a chunk of such a beautiful day to spend with me and to talk about this topic that means so much to me. It is great to be here. The lecture will be uh, a podcast that I do with Connecticut Explored magazine called Grading the Nutmeg. There'll be two parts to this. There'll be this talk, if you want to hear it again, you can kind of do fact-checking, and there'll be an extended interview I did earlier this week at uh, Hartford Public Library with the director of the History Center, Brenda Miller, and Richard Ross, the former uh, head librarian at Trinity College, who's written a new book called Before Salem, Witch Hunting in the Connecticut River Valley. I've worked on Connecticut witchcraft for a long time, and I will tell you he's done a really superb job of historical research in this book. There's a lot of new information there. So if this is a subject that is of real interest to you, let me recommend that book as something that's new and has just a whole lot to think about. I came to the study of Connecticut witchcraft when I was working on this book, Prospero's America, that's a story about one of the early colonial governors, John Winthrop Jr., and his practice of alchemy. Are there any alchemists here? But, you know, there are people out there who practice alchemy now. There are a lot of people who are interested in this because it was a form of early science that blended both religion and science and magic into one practice. When I was researching this book about alchemy, the governor's magic led me to the witch trials in Connecticut. And there was a realization, first, that Connecticut had as many trials as it did, and second, that in the earliest years of witch hunting, Connecticut was by far the fiercest prosecutor of witches in all New England. Well, who knew, right? What a question. So that opened up a whole new world to me. And 
It led me to the talk that I'm going to give now. New England's other witch hunt, the Hartford witch hunt of the 1660s, and the changing pattern of prosecution. I'm going to start from the Reformation, and by the time you go home tomorrow morning or so, and I wrap this thing up, <laughs> I hope that you all will have a better understanding of a few things. The European witchcraft tradition, it's from that tradition that witch hunting in America began and it drank deeply at that well and brought it overseas with it. We'll talk about why people feared witches enough to kill them. That's an important question. You know, witches weren't strangers that appeared out of the blue. Witches were neighbors. They were people that you had lived among for 30, 40 years. What is it that suddenly made that person who had been a member of your community for so long suddenly so dangerous that the community together would decide that their safety and security depended upon killing that person? It wasn't a joke. They were prepared to kill a neighbor because they feared something awful. Why? We'll talk about why most witches were women. By far, the preponderance of them were, but not all. We'll look at the early New England witch trials, the trials before Salem, and we'll compare them to the Salem witch hunt that everybody knows about, the one that you know, stands for all of us as the symbol of witch hunting. And finally, we will look at this Hartford witch hunt and uh, its surprise ending that changed witch hunting in Connecticut forever. So that's a lot to do. There will be a break about 11 o'clock tonight. We'll have a short nap. <laughs> so let's get going. It's always struck me as one of the greatest ironies in history that I know of. That it is the Renaissance, this period that we associate with the flowering of art and culture and science and literature, that it's in this period that the world experiences its absolutely most horrific episodes of witch hunting ever recorded. Now, witches have been part of all cultures in all times. There are still places in the world today where people are executed for being witches. It's an amazing thing. Witches have been around forever. In Exodus, in the Bible, it says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Old Testament stuff. But it is not until you get to the Protestant Reformation that you get witch hunting on the kind of scale we see in that period. It's exponentially different. Between 1500 and 1700, over 100,000 people were executed as witches in Europe. Think about that, 100,000. In Germany, 50,000. In Poland, 10,000. France, 5,000. Scotland, 1,500 to 1,800. England, that came late to the party, another 1,000 or so. Now, most people, certainly in America and quite possibly in the world, when they think about witch hunting, they think about New England. So. What would you guess, since we are the symbol of all witch hunting in the world, what would you guess the total number of people executed for witchcraft were in New England in all time? Somebody take a stab. Yes. 50 to 100 tops. 50 to 100 tops? 
50. Do I hear 60? 70. We're going with 50? How about 35? 35. The, the numbers are astonishing low for something that has that kind of psychological power. But you know what? One is too many. Why were there so many cases in this one period? Why the Reformation? You'd think with the Renaissance and this flowering of knowledge, it would go the other way. But this is something that historians have looked at. They've spilled barrels of ink uh, over. And they've kind of come to a consensus about a couple of things. The tremendous rise in witch hunting came about as a result of the Protestant Reformation. How'd that happen? It is hard for us, especially people like us who live today in a uh, somewhat secular and certainly a religiously pluralistic society. We're used to uh, having lots and lots of churches around us. It's hard for us to realize what a force for stability in society, culture, economy, and politics the Catholic Church was. It was the only transnational institution in Europe for over 1,500 years. It was the glue that held Europe together and held European society together. So when Martin Luther in 1519 pounded his 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg and fractured the uh, church apart, began this Protestant Reformation, it didn't just shatter the Catholic Church. It shattered European society, culture, and politics. Everything fragmented. And in very short order, both the Protestant and the Catholic churches realized something had gone terribly wrong in the society. And they both wanted to regain social control. They used many tools to do this. And one of the ways of kind of getting people back into, getting Pandora back into the box, as it were, was to adapt long-standing understandings of witchcraft and graft onto them some new, highly religious principles. They invented a couple of things. One, one of the ways they did it was to scientize witchcraft. And they did it with manuals like this, the Malleus Maleficorum, the Hammer of Malice. The, it, it was a treatise that rationalized and scientized the investigation, prosecution, conviction, and uh, execution of witchcraft victims. It told you how to identify a witch in great careful detail, how to interrogate them, what you should look for, what the signs of conviction were. Manuals like this took something that had been nebulous in the past and gave you a road map to conviction, a road map endorsed by, established by, and enforced by the religious hierarchy. Another thing that they did was in ways that had not been done before, people connected witchcraft to devil worship. Witchcraft had always been evil, but it's only in this period that people make the connection between black magic and the devil in the way that they did during the Renaissance, made it absolutely tight and hidebound. How did they do that? They said that witches, in order to get their magic powers, 
made a pact with the devil. They entered into a covenant with him. And if you're a, if you're a Puritan, the idea of covenanting, of signing a contract with the religious authority, that's a big deal. You make a pact with the devil, and the way that pact was authorized was you signed the devil's book. Now, when we hear that, you know, those of us who signed contracts, bought a car, bought a house, you know, taken a test, gotten a license, we understand, we think about signing papers, and that's how things are legal. But this is... This is the Reformation. It's the 1500s. Gutenberg has invented movable type in 1452. Books are the leading innovation of the time. It's the Internet. Signing the devil's book is a very sort of advanced, high-tech form of evil contracting. And it, it, you know, it helps us put the perspective of the sort of underlying power and modernity of these new magical concepts. So all of these witches supposedly made a pact with the devil. Now, all across Europe, this creates a real problem. Because if you've got, I mean, if you execute 100,000 people, the actual number of witches has to be huge, right? So if you've got 100,000 people, they're all signing the devil's book, how come you don't see people lined up in the town square to sign the devil's book with the devil sitting there? Well, they invented another thing that's really a fabulous solution. The night ride to the witch's sabbat, using a magic spell or an unguent or some kind of lotion or salve that you might rub on a broomstick, you would... Uh, fly off to a mountain somewhere far, far away, and up in that mountain on the continent, you would meet with the devil and his minions, and you would party down. Part of it would be signing the book. Now, if you look at this picture, it looks like a pretty grainy woodcut. But in the early 1500s and late 1500s, this was film at 11. These pictures were new. This was access to visual information that had never been available before. It's, you know, it's Instagram. It's everything you want to see. So people would get a, um, is that working? Yeah. They would look at this and they'd say, they would study something like this really closely. The stuff we see is hardly legible would be just fascinating. If you look very closely at this, you will see a lot of people in various states of dress cavorting with beings that look really strange. It's a real party, but the, the one, they're doing the Macarena and the big one. <laughs> the one takeaway from this, though, that you know, might be useful to you is if you're walking down Main Street tonight heading to Cafe Manic or Willie Brew or something, and you see a guy with fire coming out of his wrists, turn the other way, move very quickly. So you have this night ride to the spot. You've got all these new things that scientize witchcraft and that explain uh, why and how there can be so many cases. But there's another reason there were so many executions during this period, and that's because the church allowed suspects to be tortured. Now, what's going on here? This is, on the, on the surface, this is one of the most vile forms of abuse you can imagine. 
How is it that the smartest theologians, the wisest lawyers, the richest men feel that it's completely justified to take an usually elderly, often adult uh, person, usually a woman, and subject her to these incredible tortures? Well, there's a reason, and the reason is that she's a servant of the devil. And if she signed the devil's book, the devil is her ally. And if you're good, he'll give her the power to resist anything. You've got to be ruthless. And torture is one of the ways you extract truth from someone aligned with the devil. It's a terrible thing. These are some of the instruments of torture that were used during the Reformation. They are all largely variations on a theme except for the first one, which is that's the uh, lazy boy witchcraft torture device. You've had a bad day in the dungeon. It's cold. Your lumbago's acting up. So why don't you come out? I know it's terrible, and I don't want this to happen. Do you have a seat in the chair? Look, it's comfortable, nice, rattan. Put your feet down on the thing and put your arms up on those armrests. Oh, the things sticking out of them? Those are just nails. So tell me again, <clears throat> aren't you a witch? And the hands come down on your arms and you scream. And sooner or later, you scream, yes. Now when someone finally confesses to having signed the devil's pact, having gone to those witches' sabbats, and you are the interrogator charged with protecting your town, what's the next question you're going to ask them? Say again? It's exactly right. It's exact, and that's how you get 100,000 people. You, if you read the testimonies of these interrogations, we, we don't have you know, the kinds of transcripts you have now, but we've got enough that you can tell that in the process of questioning a suspect, they'll drop a name here and they'll drop a name there. And by the time someone is broken enough to confess to being a witch, they know exactly who the accomplices are. And over and over again, the right names come out and the wrong people die. Confessions increased as a result of torture, which of course proved that there was a terrible outbreak of witchcraft. And it's this circular thing that feeds on itself for two centuries. On the continent in Europe, witches were burned as heretics. So after enduring some of the worst torture a person can suffer, they then suffer the most painful death. This was a terrible, terrible time that we mostly associate with high culture, science, literature, and art. So you have to ask yourself, what is it? What is it that these people were afraid of? That they were willing to do this? And the answer, if you can think like someone who lived in the 1500s and the 1600s, is pretty easy. Witches possessed a battery of magical powers that were very strong and they were very dangerous. A witch could use love magic. She could make someone fall in love with you. She could make someone fall out of love with you. She could, by casting spells, 
tell you who you were going to marry. That's what gave witchcraft a great fascination for young girls who often got sucked into that web of, with this conjuring up of future husband. Perhaps more importantly, what do we got? Witches could affect the weather. Now, sounds like that could be bad, but let me try to paint for you how bad it was. This is a, all over the world, people are living in subsistence agrarian economies. What does that mean? Whether you make it through the winter one year depends on the strength of the harvest that year. If you have a good year, you might have a good winter. And even in a good winter, when April comes and the crops are just going in, you're scraping the bottom of the barrels, measuring out things to see if you can get through to the first crops without being hungry. So having good harvest is essential to life. And anything, anyone that could affect the weather had immense power. What you see here are a couple of English witches brewing up a storm in 1611. They're called the Pendle Witches. And this was, the, this was one of the powers witches could exercise that they, they feared the most. Uh, Scott Haney told me yesterday morning that we are effectively one month behind in rainfall over the last two months. We're three inches short. Now, I know that that's Scott Haney's fault, but uh, I mean, oh, you know, we have we have science, we have weather patterns, we have climate. They can pretty much they're getting better and better about telling us what the weather is going to be, kind of where the hurricane's going to go. That wasn't the world our people lived in. They didn't have why explanations. There was only, you know, it was either God or the devil causing the problem. And when things went bad, when it rained for two weeks and the crops were all ruined, you didn't ask why, you asked who. And often you knew who. And it was someone you hadn't liked for a long, long time. Weather magic was a terrible problem. So was the ability to harm animals. In this subsistence agrarian society, the, um, you didn't have social security, you didn't have safety nets, you didn't have pension funds. You maybe had some cows and some sheep, maybe a goat. That was your old age pension fund. And if someone, suppose that woman who, you know, that difficult woman, you know the one I'm talking about, her, what if she walked past your barn the other night and she was mumbling and she looked at your prized bull, the one that you knew was going to be your bonus, she mumbled something and the next day you went out to the barn and the bull couldn't walk. And the day after that it just laid down and the day after that it died. You didn't ask why, you asked who. And often you knew exactly who it was and you began to tell people, you know, the other night, guess who came by and she mumbled something when she was by his stall and now my bull is dead and now my future is really uncertain. Witches could alter natural processes. Maybe your wife's like my wife. In our village, she makes the finest cheeses of anyone in the world. How many of you have made cheese ever? Have People, it's hard work, isn't it, to do it well, to, to make, you know, to really make good cheeses is hard, careful, got to be clean work. Um, 
So if you get a reputation for being a good cheesemaker in the early modern world, that's wonderful. But what if one year you go out to the cheese shed and you pull out a big wheel of cheese and it's time to cut into it, and you cut into it, and there are maggots everywhere. And you cut into the next wheel, and there are maggots everywhere, and maggots in every wheel of cheese, and that's never happened before. You don't ask why. You ask who, and often you know who. Problematically, witches could change shape. They could appear as a bat, a cat, an owl. They could also appear as another person, which raised some really really difficult problems of testimony in trials. But shape-shifting was a very... It appears commonly in testimony uh, accusing witches. They sometimes appear as various animals or other things. Witches could divine the future. They could tell you what was going to happen. They could tell you about conversations that happened hundreds of miles away. Now, everyone knew that only God, the Alpha and the Omega, could tell you what would happen from the beginning to the end of time. Sometimes God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed the devil insights into the future. But if someone who was a mere mortal received information about the future, and it wasn't prophecy, it didn't come from God, it could only come from one source. Divining the future was perilous ground for anyone in the early modern world. Most problematically of all, witches could hurt humans. And that's why many of the people accused with witches often were healers, cunning women, they called them, the the, uh, local practitioners in their towns. All women in the early modern world were expected to practice household medicine, to have an array of remedies, herbs, conserves, that they could prepare in their houses for their families. And if you were good at it, you became a healer for the people in your neighborhood. And if you were really good at it, you became a healer for the community. Well, suppose you got a reputation as a great healer, but then suddenly your medicines didn't do anything for people who you didn't like. In fact, the people you didn't like not only didn't get healed, they died. So very suddenly the great healer that you were suddenly becomes the great suspect that you are. Um, it is a form of magic power that people feared immensely and they thought was used against them all the time. Now you take all of these forms of magic and you bump them together. They had a term maleficia, malice. It's, it's the word from which we get the word malice. It's evil, it's bad, it's harmful. And people were terribly, terribly Afraid of these kinds of magic powers. Why did they think witches could do this? Because everybody alive, every single person alive in early modern Europe and early America believed to some degree and usually a very high degree in magic. Why did they believe in magic? They believed that the universe was filled with occult forces. Now, occult is a word that literally means hidden. It means unseen. And in the world they lived in, these unseen forces came from the stars, the planets, God. They came from the angels. They came from stones. They came from metals, plants. Occult 
influences were everywhere. They emanated out of the earth, from the sky, and from heaven, and from evil spirits as well. And a witch was someone who, with the devil's help, became a master at harnessing and concentrating these occult influences to inflict maleficia in various ways on various people. Now, in a world that has such a pervasive belief in the occult influences everywhere, the most advanced science of the time is the early modern form of chemistry we call alchemy. You all know about alchemy, right? So what is it that an alchemist in this early modern period is trying to do? Say again? Make gold out of lead. That's, that's, they were trying to do other things, but that's the thing we most associate them with, right? Isn't that stupid? Why would anybody want to do that? Well, the philosopher's stone, the, the uh, it's universal, it's, it's a universal panacea, or panacea, that, it's a uh, cure for everything. Right. And one of the side effects is being able to transmute metals from one form to another, but that's just part of being able to control all those occult forces. It's controlling the occult forces, and yes, there is the, the, the philosopher's stone supposedly creates a universal panacea, cure all diseases secret to a long life, and oh yes, turn lead into gold. But this sort of fixation that many people had with turning lead into gold just strikes me as being really stupid. I don't know why anybody would waste years trying to do that. So you turn lead into gold, so what? You control the monetary supply. <laughs> you control the monetary supply? Oh, you get rich? Well, not it brings power, but literally it's... Oh, so money is power? What a strange world. And that's why they do it. They, they, see, it was a different world. Just can't trump the old days. Uh, sorry. Okay. So how many of you would agree that, that one of the reasons you would turn lead into gold is... To control money is for the money aspect of it. Raise your hand high so I can see. That's almost every, well, it's certainly well over half. That is so 21st century. I, I mean, there were people who thought that at the time too, and many of them, but there was an underlying reason that they said was even more important. Because this is a world, we live in a world that has these firewalls that separate religion, science, and magic, right? Religion has its world, science has its world, magic has its world, and they don't really, they're, they're kind of, we think of them differently. Maybe religion and science have some overlap, but not much. In the early modern period, they were tangled together like a DNA helix. You could not tease apart religion, science, and magic. They were so thoroughly embedded into each other that the way people thought had religious, scientific, and magical dimensions at the same time. And nowhere do you see that more than with this effort to turn lead into gold. Because what an alchemist in the 1600s would tell you is that if you are trying to turn lead into gold to make money, God will see to it that you fail because you're doing it for greedy reasons and God doesn't promote greed. Why you're trying to turn lead into gold 
is because you want to take the most corrupt and foul element in the world, lead, the basest, and purify it into the purest, the metal without blemish that never uh, tarnishes. It's bringing purity out of corruption just the way that Christ, when he redeems sinners, he washes away their corruption and their evil nature and he purifies their souls. Now, you know, 21st century ears have trouble going other than yada yada with that because we know deep down inside it's the money. But 17th century people found that to be a really compelling argument. One of the points that I hope you will take away at the end of this talk is that whenever you hear about something in history that doesn't make sense or that seems completely stupid, like prosecuting witches, there's probably, it's probably because you need to go back and try to get into the heads of the people who did it. People don't do things for clearly irrational reasons if they can help it. But what they consider rational can be very different than what we do. This is a picture of God helping an alchemist get ready to go into the lab. It was standard procedure that you would pray for an hour or two before you went into the laboratory because you'd ask for God's help. It was also a way of sort of concentrating. It was a kind of meditation that would focus you on the experimental work. Now, most alchemists never thought that God would find them good enough to perfect transmutation. But what they did believe and what actually happened is that God might give them a lesser victory. Maybe they'd come up with some improvement in medicine or mining or metals or agriculture or manufacturing. Some little improvement that would make the world better, make people's lives better, and prepare the way for the millennium, for Christ's return to earth when everything would be better. This is what drove alchemists. This is also what drove this early form of chemistry, a kind of spiritual practice fusion. The biggest point is that everyone in this world believed in the awesome power of magic. Magic could do amazing things for good and for ill. Okay. When I said at the beginning of the talk that England came a little bit late to the witch hunting world uh, and when it did, it modified continental witchcraft in some really interesting ways. One thing, they didn't use torture. The torture devices I saw you, they never got used in England. What they would do is they'd keep people up all night, they'd play heavy metal music in their cells. They, they, you know, they, they would do things that we would consider torture, but none of the stuff that I showed you, none of that really violent, terrible stuff. They also didn't burn witches. They hanged them for treason. Now, isn't that strange? A witch makes a pact with the devil, and she gets hanged for treason. Why? Why wouldn't you just burn her as a heretic? It, bingo. Because this is England. England has broken away from the Catholic Church. Who is the head of the English Church? Henry VIII. It's 
it's the king. And if you make a pact with the devil, you're committing treason against the monarch. So you suffer the penalty of someone who has committed treason. You are hanged, and in the worst circumstances, you can be drawn and quartered, a real form of butchery I won't talk about. They also came up with some new concepts in England that answered some of the problems they had on the continent. One is, all right, if we've got all these witches in England, it's a little island nation, how come we don't see the devil out on the street with the witches? We see the witches, we don't see the devil. It's a lot harder on a small island kingdom to have witches fly off to a mountain somewhere far away, but you still need some go-between between the witch and the devil, so they invented the familiar. The familiar is a, often a, a, an animal, a bat, a cat, a dog, an owl, a small child, a little someone you see scurrying through the woods, across the floor, someone who might... Oh, I don't know, ride on the back of your broom to the primary school window before Halloween. The, the familiar is the go-between between the witch and the devil, the person who takes messages back and forth, the communicator. And this is really an elegant solution to the how come we don't see the devil question, right? Because there are lots of rats and mice and cats running the streets, and any one of them could be a familiar, especially if they came out of you-know-who's barn or you-know-who's house. The English were elegant in coming up with this solution, and then they did something that was so incredibly weird in a lot of ways that uh, I think it helps explain English humor. And... Because someone said, well, if we've got a familiar, where does the familiar, where, where does the familiar get nourishment? And then they invented the witch's teat. The witch's teat is supposedly a mark uh, on a suspected witch's body that looks like an extra nipple. It can be anywhere on the body. And if you have that witch's teat, that is where both the devil and the familiar get nourishment when they're with the witch. It's how they, how they get food. Bizarre, isn't it? And you just think, wow, these are, these are some pretty strange people. Until you hear about the kinds of abuses people were subjected to in this search for the devil's mark or the witch's teeth. Um, the way it would work is this, and it happened in New England as well as in Europe. Nine or ten of the leading women in the town would take a suspected witch. They would take her into a room, and they would literally tear off her clothes. And then, like a swarm of ants, they would go over every centimeter of her body, searching for a witch's teeth. And then they would report back to the men who would report the findings to the whole community. Think of the kind of psychological and physical abuse people were subjected to because they wanted to find the witches' teeth. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Bev York, Jamie Eves, and the Mill Museum in Willimantic. 
In part two, we'll follow English witch hunting to Connecticut and tell the horrific but little-known story of the Hartford witch hunt of the 1660s and its important aftermath. It's a fascinating tale of what fear can do to a community and what a community in fear can do to its own. It's one of the stories we live by, coming up in part two of Witch Hunting in Connecticut on Grading the Nutmeg.